Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. We're going to look at verses 1 through 10. I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 10 tonight, but we won't be covering the whole section. And to be honest with you, we probably won't cover the whole 10 verses even next week. It might take us three more weeks to cover this section because there's so much here. As you've probably heard me reference in the past, many of us have probably heard about the kingdom of God. We've heard about the millennial kingdom and the fact that there's a kingdom to come. Of course, many Christians think that Jesus doesn't come and rule and reign literally on the earth. He just comes back and gets us and we go be with him. But the Bible teaches about, about a millennial kingdom. And we're going to be spending not only last week, but this week and the next and most likely the next really teaching on it for this reason. I've come to realize that as much as many people can say, I've heard about the millennial kingdom, I've heard about the kingdom to come, very few of us have ever been taught of what the scriptures actually say about it, what it's going to be like, how's it going to be. And so we're going to be spending a lot of time spending, uh, just looking at the scriptures about it. And in Revelation chapter 20, we're going to read this, these verses to you. John says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were, the, were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented. There they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. In, this, in these ten verses, John covers a thousand years of earth's future history. Now, Scripture is long foretold of the time to come on the earth called the kingdom of God, where God, God's will is done on the earth as it is in heaven. And the book of Revelation is what shows us how long it's going to be, that it's going to last a thousand years. Now, it's obvious from the context here that this thousand years is literal and not symbolic. Because have you noticed how many times that John said a thousand years? And he says it in such a way that you can see he's talking about a literal thousand years and when the thousand years are ended and this is going to happen for a thousand years and so on. Now, some people say that since, well, I want you to turn there, go to Psalm 50. If you ever try to talk to someone about the fact that the, the millennial kingdom is going to last a literal thousand years on the earth, many times people will respond with Psalm chapter 50 and they'll say, well, the Bible says that God owns a cattle on a thousand hills, and that's not literal. And so what I want to do is I want to show you from Scripture the difference between the two. In Psalm 50, look at verses 7 through 12. Scripture says, Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. 
Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. As you can see in the context, when God says the cattle on a thousand hills, he's talking symbolically, of course, because the context shows it. Because in every other passage around it, he's saying all of the birds, all of the animals. He's just showing that it means all of it. But if we go back now and look again at Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 7, look closely again, and you'll see the scriptures are very clear that this isn't symbolic. All right, it says in verse 2, And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him, that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those whose authority to judge was committed. And I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, or had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. You see it over and over, and then you get to verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, it's very clear in this passage, the context shows us, this thousand is a literal thousand. We're back in Psalm 50, when it says cattle on a thousand hills, the context shows you that it meant all of the hills. And so that's why we need to build our doctrine from context of what's really going on. And so I just share that with you to let you know that I think the Bible teaches without question that this time period of this kingdom to come, where Jesus comes back to the earth and literally rules and reigns on the earth, is going to last a thousand years, because the scripture says so, actually says it six times in seven verses. All right? But... Not only is this why we call this time called this time to come the millennial kingdom, thousand year kingdom, there's also more to our reasoning than that. You see, the kingdom of God has actually been a point of contention for and confusion for Jews and Christians for many years. One of the main reasons is because Jesus spoke of the kingdom in different terms. And we're going to take a look at a lot of them. We're actually going to break down what the scripture says from the beginning to the end, all about the kingdom tonight. It's going to take a little bit of time, and I want you to be willing to write some things down. That's why we gave you these little definitions. I'm going to read to you Gene Mims' definition of the kingdom of God, and then we're going to take some time to break it all down. He says, the kingdom of God is the reign of God through Christ in the lives of persons as evidenced by his activity in, through, and around them. The kingdom was prophesied in the Old Testament. Pictured in Israel, proclaimed by John the Baptist, inaugurated by Christ during his public ministry on earth, extended in the lives of believers through the church in the present age, and will be consummated by Christ when he returns to the earth to rule with his saints. All right? So the kingdom, as you can see, has a lot of parts to it. So we're going to break these parts down according to this definition from Scripture. Go with me to Daniel chapter 7. I want you to see that the Old Testament predicted the kingdom's coming. The Old Testament predicted the kingdom was going to come. Daniel chapter 7. Look at verses 13 through 27. <clears throat> Daniel 7 verse 13. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, as we go on, we're going to keep reading this section. Keep in mind, Daniel says, I saw in the night vision, one like a son of man, we know it now as Jesus, who was presented before the ancient of days, and this kingdom was given to him, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. That's the kingdom still to come. But look, as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron, the claws of bronze, and which devoured in broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So we see here that there's going to be some kingdoms on the earth, Daniel was told, and then there's going to be this last kingdom that's going to be worse than all the others. We have already studied about this kingdom in our earlier study of Revelation. We know now it's the Antichrist and his kingdom, the one last one world power on the earth. And then after that one last one man earthly kingdom is when Jesus gets his kingdom, and so do the saints, and we'll see that later tonight. Thus he said, verse 23, Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth, and trample it down, and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for how long? Time, times, and half a time. That's that second half of the tribulation period. We've already studied about the three and a half years. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and dominion shall serve and obey him. So the scripture clearly shows us that the kingdom is going to come when this last world power comes on the scene. After that time is over, after been, he's been given authority for three and a half years, Jesus, we know, comes back and the kingdom will be given to him and those who believe in him forever and ever from that time forward. So we know that the kingdom is to come, yet the kingdom is still now as well, and we'll get to that in a little bit. That's where a lot of this confusion comes from. So let's just build our definition from Scripture saying this. The Old Testament prophesied that there was a kingdom to come. We good with that? All right. But now we'll deal with that more on that later. Uh, not only tonight, but next week. The kingdom was also pictured in Israel. Go to 1 Chronicles chapter 28. When God set up the nation of Israel, he did it as a picture of the kingdom to come. 1 Chronicles chapter 28. Look at verses 1 through 5. Says David assembled at Jerusalem all the officials of Israel, the officials of the tribes, and the officers of the divisions that served the king, the commanders of thousands, the commanders of hundreds, the stewards of all the property and livestock of the kings and his sons, together with the palace officials, the mighty men, and all the seasoned warriors. 
Then King David rose to his feet and said, Hear me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God, and I made preparations for building. But God said to me, You may not build a house for my name, for you are a man of war and have shed blood. Yet the Lord God of Israel chose me from all my father's house to be king over Israel forever. For he chose Judah as, his, as leader, and in the house of Judah at my father's house, and among my father's sons, he took pleasure in me to make me king over all Israel. And of all my sons, for the Lord has given me many sons, he has chosen Solomon, my son, to sit on the throne of, we see it, the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. The kingdom was pictured in Israel. Remember how God said, I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people? Remember, the kingdom is the place wherever the king rules and reigns, right? That's the kingdom. God says, I'm going to choose you as my people. I've called you out of the among, from among the nations. I'm going to bring you into the land that I've promised to you. And I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. I'm going to set up my kingdom here through you. But you have to, to be my people and be my kingdom. You have to do what I say. If you do what I say, I'll bless you and you'll multiply in this land. If you disobey me, what did he say he would do? Scatter them, remove them from the land. So it was to be pictured, this kingdom to come was going to be pictured in Israel. How did Israel do? Not too good. But it was to be pictured in Israel. But there's also a third part of this definition of the kingdom from the scriptures. The Bible also says that the kingdom was proclaimed by John the Baptist. Go with me to Matthew chapter 3. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 1, 2, and 3. Matthew 3, starting in verse 1. It says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And this was his message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at a hand. For this was he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So John the Baptist comes on and he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. You say, wait a minute, Jim. He didn't say the kingdom of God was at hand. He said the kingdom of heaven was at hand. Now I'm going to stop for a second and we're going to chase a rabbit. Because I've taught you before, I, I teach preachers a lot all around the country on preaching. And I always tell them, don't chase rabbits when you preach or teach. But if you do chase a rabbit, make sure it's one you can catch. And if you catch it, it tastes good. We're going to chase a rabbit because this one's catchable and it tastes awesome. Because I need to stop right now and help you understand something that many Christians don't. Matthew wrote his gospel to the Jews. That's who his audience was. To show them that Jesus was the Messiah. If you know anything about devout Jews, they will not say the name God. Do you even know Jewish people today that are devout? And they send you an email, and they even say God. It'll be capital G, asterisk, capital D. They won't even say the name God. And Matthew knew that as he wrote the gospel to the Jews, if he used the term kingdom of God, they would reject it because that was a, a no-no. You don't write God's name even. So he called it the kingdom of heaven. And because of this, many Christians, because of the theology of replacing the church, of the, of taking Israel and being, replacing them with the church, we have been taught that the kingdom is to come. In other words, when we go to heaven, that's the kingdom of God. And everything, all the teaching about the end times and Jesus coming back to the earth and the sheep and the goats and all this stuff, we all have been taught that that has to do with when we go to heaven. But what I want to do is show you proof from Scripture, undeniable proof, that when the Matthew talks about the kingdom of heaven, it's the exact same thing as every other gospel talking about the kingdom of God. And I can prove it to you by showing you Matthew chapter 13. Go to Matthew 13, look at verses 31 and 32. 
Matthew chapter 13, look at verses 31 and 32. He, meaning Jesus, put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants, and it becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make its nest in its branches. So we here see that the kingdom of heaven, the parable of the picture of the kingdom of heaven, is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed. It's planted in the ground. It grows so big it becomes a tree, and all the birds nest in its branches. Go to Mark chapter 4. Just turn over one book. Go to Mark chapter 4 and look at verses 30 and 31. And he, verse 30 of Mark 4, Jesus, and he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Pretty clear, isn't it? They're the same thing. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are the same thing. So whenever you read kingdom of heaven, don't think heaven. Think kingdom of God, which is going to be coming to this earth. The term heaven has caused so much confusion, but if people have been faithful to just do a little research and check some scriptures, you'll find that whenever Matthew talks about the kingdom of heaven, it's the exact same thing that Mark and Luke and John are all talking about when they're quoting Jesus about the kingdom of God. So John the Baptist came, and when he said the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he actually was saying the kingdom of God is at hand. Matthew changed the name to heaven because he didn't want the, the Jews rejecting his gospel. So he wanted to leave read it. So when, Matt, when John the Baptist comes on the scene, he says, repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, it's, it's, it's almost here. Get ready. By the way, when did the kingdom show up on this earth? When Jesus came. Why? Because he's, he's the king. He's the king. He's the one who's going to be given the kingdom on the earth. So he shows up. Well, the kingdom was inaugurated by Christ Jesus himself in his public ministry. You're already in Mark 4. Back up to Mark chapter 1. Look at verses 14 and 15. In Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Now, after John, this is John the Baptist, was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. That means the good news of God. And saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So after John the Baptist's message of repenting and get ready because here comes the kingdom, Jesus shows up and says, the kingdom's here. The kingdom's here. Repent and believe the good news. Go to Luke chapter 17. In Luke 17, verses 20 and 21. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now this is one of the verses that has been used over the years by people to say, The kingdom of God is not a literal coming kingdom to the earth. Because Jesus said it's not going to be one you see coming and you think there it is. But it's in the midst of us. The kingdom's within you, as some translations say. You've heard that before, haven't you? Again, there's a danger in using one passage of Scripture to build your theology. Use the whole of Scripture and you'll find that what Jesus was saying here was true. Because the Pharisees were expecting the kingdom to come. But what was the, king, the definition of the kingdom the Pharisees were looking for? Them to be in power. 
them to be ruling and reigning. Jesus actually says, actually the kingdom, it's in the midst of you. It's right here, and you don't even see it. You don't even understand it. That's why when he rode into Jerusalem, at the end of the day, after everybody had been praising him, the Bible says Jesus wept. He cried. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if only you had known what would bring you peace. But now it's hidden from your eyes. And then Jesus said, when did he tell his disciples when he was taking the Last Supper with them? I won't eat this meal with you again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. The kingdom was offered to the Jews. It was at hand, they were to receive it. But they didn't understand that the kingdom was tied to Jesus. And their wrong definition of the kingdom made them miss the kingdom. And Jesus understood, even though it was offered, they were going to reject it. But one day the kingdom would then come. So, let me show you something else. Go to Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 through 25. It says, And he, Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted and with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So here we see that when Jesus comes, he's proclaiming the kingdom, talking about the kingdom. Now the kingdom's here. And he also, while he was saying the kingdom was here, was doing something which was getting a lot of attention. He was casting demons out. He was healing people of sickness. And I want you to understand, this is tied to Jesus' preaching about the kingdom. And it's clarified as we take Matthew 4 and look over at Luke 11. Because Jesus says something that's recorded in Luke 11 that all of a sudden starts to help us understand why all the healings and the miracles that happened at the beginning of Jesus' ministry there. And I actually think they will still continue today, and I'll show you that in a second. Go to Luke chapter 11, look at verses 14 through 23. Now he, Jesus, was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household fall, falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, whom do your sons cast them out? By whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But, look at closely at verse 20. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When the strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. They said, you're casting out demons by the power of Satan. He said, have you thought about what you just said? If Satan's divided against himself, because you would agree that the demons are from Satan, if Satan's casting out demons, that's a kingdom divided against itself. That kingdom's not going to stand. But if what's happening is by the finger of God, that means the kingdom of God is among you. And what was Jesus doing? He was demonstrating that he was 
true king. And he had the true authority. And he was the stronger one who would cast out. Remember, because of sin, God, God, the whole Bible says Psalm 24, verse 1, the earth of the Lord's and everything in it. Yet he gave dominion to who in Genesis chapter 1? He gave his dominion to man. He gave, he says, I'm going to give you dominion and authority. It's going to be your kingdom under my authority, but it'll be your kingdom. You get to rule and reign on the earth. But when they disobeyed God, they subleased the kingdom to Satan. And the Bible says that it's become his kingdom, isn't it? The kingdom right now is under the rule and authority of who? Satan. He's the prince of the power of the earth. By the way, don't let anybody tell you we're in the kingdom now. There's aspects of the kingdom that are being evident now. And we're going to talk about that in a second. But the kingdom has not been fully realized now in the church. Because if that were the case, Satan would be bound. We saw that in Revelation, didn't we? He's going to be bound for a thousand years. Satan's not bound. He's still the ruler of this world. That's why when Jesus came on the scene, Satan knows full well who he is. And he comes to him and he tempts him in the garden. I'm sorry, in the wilderness there. And what does he do? He offers him the kingdom. He says, if you'll bow down to me, I will give you the kingdom. How is Satan offering the kingdom? Because it's his right now. Oh, ultimately God's in control. But on this earth, is Jesus ruling and reigning? Is are things being done on the earth as it would be in heaven? No. The kingdom of God that's going to be on this earth was prophesied in the Old Testament that one day after the last world kingdom of man ruled by Satan is going to come to an end. And we've already seen a lot about that already. Antichrist will be in charge of that. At the end of that time period, Jesus himself is going to come back and the kingdom is going to be given to him and the saints. It was pictured in Israel. The nation of Israel was a picture of what God wanted to show what the kingdom would look like. Israel didn't do the greatest job, and the, the picture wasn't real clear. John the Baptist comes on the scene and says, the kingdom's about to show up right in your midst. Get ready, repent. Jesus comes and says, the kingdom's here. It's in your midst. And he demonstrated that by casting out demons and healing sicknesses. Oh, by the way, the reason why people are sick and people die is because of Satan and his kingdom. He's not the greatest king. He'll try to make you think that he's a great king, but he's not. He doesn't like you at all. He hates his, king, his subjects. Just using us for his purposes to get back at God. I believe without question, and we're going to see that in just a second, that God still wants to do miracles of healing and casting out of demons through his subjects. Now, stick with me here. I actually, because my wife and I support missionaries all over the globe and we keep in contact with them, I can tell you story upon story of the fact that these things are still happening across the globe. People say, why don't we see them here in America? Well, there's a couple of reasons. The one reason I won't get into in too much detail, it's too deep of a theology question to deal with. But the, the, the short answer is simply this. Jesus said there are certain things that only come out by prayer and fasting. And let's be honest, as a, as a whole, in the United States, Christians in America are really weak when it comes to living, saying no to the flesh and yes to the spirit. But there's another reason. I believe the Bible also teaches that the purpose of the miracles was to show that the kingdom of God was here and to gain a hearing for the preaching of the gospel. When you go to parts of the globe where the gospel hasn't been allowed to be preached in that kind of way, God is doing miracles of raising the dead and casting out demons to, to, to show that the kingdom of God is here and to be able to hear the message of the gospel. I have, we have missionary friends in, in South uh, Dakota right now who are working with an Indian in an Indian reservation and in the, in the witchcraft and in the, in the, in the, in the idolatry that's happening in that nation is unbelievable. But they are healing 
and miracles are happening. And the Indians in this tribe are starting to come to faith. And their hatred of the white man is starting to go away. And God is doing an amazing work. But let me just tell you something. Once the gospel begins to pre be preached and allowed to be preached, God puts his power in the preaching of the gospel. You ever notice that even though Peter and Paul and those guys were able to do these amazing miracles of healing people and raising the dead, they didn't start healing ministries. They understood that that was to start open the door so people would understand that they would hear the gospel. And as they began to be able to preach the gospel, they healed less, preached more. God's faith is in the preaching. And here in America, we have been given plenty of opportunity to preach the gospel. And it's the power of God for salvation. The miracles are used to gain a hearing for the message. There are some that say in Christianity that the miracles have ceased. I don't believe the Bible teaches that at all. Because remember what Jesus said? He says, you're going to be able to do even greater things than these. Go to our next part of the definition. Our fifth part of the definition is that the kingdom is also extended in the lives of believers through the church in the present age. Even though the kingdom is still to come, the kingdom is still here. Yes, the kingdom is now, but not in full consummation. The kingdom is here. Remember our definition? The kingdom of God is the reign of God through Christ in the lives of persons as evidenced by his activity in, through, and around them. We saw that it was prophesied in the Old Testament, pictured in Israel, proclaimed by John the Baptist, inaugurated by Christ in his public ministry on the earth, and it is extended right now in the lives of believers through the church in the present age. Go to Revelation chapter 1. Hopefully now, something we read way, way back at the beginning of our study will make a whole lot more sense. Revelation chapter 1. Look at verses 4 through 8. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a what? He's made us a kingdom. Priest to his God and Father. And to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye shall see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Folks, I want you to understand something that the Bible teaches that the kingdom is extended right now through the lives of those of us who have been born again through faith in Jesus Christ. The king came to live within our hearts and he wants, just like he wanted to picture the kingdom through Israel, he wants to demonstrate his kingdom being alive still in this earth through us who are the salt and the light of the world. And he actually has said, I will do through you even greater stuff than I did. But most of us don't fully believe a lot of that stuff and that's a message for another day and I don't want to derail myself. But go with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. We have been chosen to be a kingdom, we just saw in Revelation chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. But you, Christians, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The kingdom is extended in the lives of believers through the church age, folks. 
But that doesn't mean that the, that is the fulfillment of the kingdom. Because what did the scriptures say about the prophecy about the kingdom? That it was still to come, and it doesn't fully be consummated until the end of time as we know it on the earth and man's rule on the earth. And after that last three and a half year period of that seven year tribulation period, when the Antichrist is finally defeated, and Jesus comes, and the kingdom is given to him and his saints. The kingdom cannot be fully consummated until Jesus, the king, comes back to the earth. And that's very important. And we're going to get to something in just a little second. Uh, so look at your sixth part of the definition. The kingdom will be consummated by Christ himself when he returns to the earth to rule with his saints. Let me show you something real quick. Go to Revelation chapter 11. Excuse me, Revelation 11, verses 15 through 18. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Do you see it? The kingdom of the world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. By the way, when is this said? In verse 15, you got the clue there. When is it said? When what's blown? The seventh trumpet. That's at the end of all the seals. You get the seventh trumpet, and then you get seven bowls of wrath still coming. But that's all tied to his second coming. Behold, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, which means it hasn't happened yet. And he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. What's missing? It is to, how come is to come is now gone? Because at this point, he's coming. He's beginning to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Go to Revelation chapter 5. We saw earlier in Daniel chapter 7 that the kingdom was not only handed over to the, one, the Son of Man, but the kingdom was handed over to the saints of the king. In Revelation chapter 5, look at verses 6, and, 6 through 10. And behold, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, with which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall what? They shall reign on the earth. Folks, this is extremely important that you don't miss this. Not only has he made us a kingdom. When the kingdom is finally consummated, when Jesus comes back to the earth, he's not going to take the believers and then go off to heaven. The Bible says he's coming back here and he's going to set up a kingdom here on the earth. I'm just going to hopefully by scripture pound that into our brains. Go to Matthew chapter 6. Go to Matthew chapter 6. Look at verses 9 through 10. Jesus is teaching what we call the Lord's Prayer, or the model for prayer, or the template for prayer. And in the first two verses of, of that teaching, he says, pray like this. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom, what? Come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, in case you say, well, that's not foolproof, back up to chapter 5 and look at verses 1 through 5. Seeing the crowds, 
He went up to the mountain and he sat down. His disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, which we know is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall what? Inherit the earth. Folks, let me ask you a simple question. If the kingdom of God is just simply God reigning through the lives of us here on the earth, when are we going to inherit the earth? Well, it gets even more clear. Go with me to Psalm 37. Psalm 37. Look at verses 1 through 9. Fret not yourselves because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It only tends to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall what? Inherit the land. Keep reading. Look at verses 10 and 11. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he won't be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Jump down to verse 22. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. The scripture clearly says that in a certain time, the wicked will be no more on the earth, but the righteous will inherit the land. When the wicked are no more, then the righteous will inherit the land. There has to be a future time coming where these scriptures are fulfilled. But again, I don't want you to take my word for it. My purpose is just to show you the scriptures and let the Spirit of God show you. And you wrestle with it. And you, you examine everything I'm saying according to the scriptures. So what I want to do is I want to take you all the way back to Genesis. Where God made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob about them receiving the land of Israel. And their descendants receiving the land also. And that they would receive it, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their descendants as an everlasting possession. So go with me to Genesis chapter 12. Look at verses 1, 2, and 3. And again, I'm going to go through this fast enough that some of you might just need to write some of these scriptures down. And I apologize for my speed, but then again, that's how God made me, so I don't apologize too much. <laughs> Genesis 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and to your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I'll bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I will also bless those who bless you, and in who, him who dishonors you, I'll, and I will curse. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Go to chapter 13 now. Look at verses 14 through 18. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to who? To you and to your offspring forever. Go over to, well, I'm going to keep reading. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count, can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to who? To you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Go to chapter 17. Look at verses 1 through 8. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. 
Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So God now has said three times to Abram, I'm going to give to you and your descendants this land. Let me ask you a question. Did Abraham ever get it while he was alive on the earth? Never did. He never did. Well, God also continues the promise to chapter 26. Go to chapter 26. He makes the same promise to Isaac. And he references this promise to his father. In Genesis 26, look at verses 1 through 3. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Don't go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you... And to your offspring, I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. Did you catch that? He says, I'm going to give it to you as well. And I'm going to keep my promise that I made to your father. I'm going to give you and your descendants this land. Go to Genesis 28. Look at verses 10 through 15. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land in which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. So now Jacob, the son of Isaac, is told the exact same thing. I'm going to give it to you and to your offspring, this land. By the way, did Isaac ever receive the land while he was on the earth? Never did. But God said, I'm going to give it to you and your descendants. Jacob's told the same thing. Let me show you one more time that Jacob's told it. Because at the same time, God changes his name to Israel in Genesis 35. Look at verses 9 through 15. So Rachel, I'm jumped ahead, that's in verse 19. Go to verse 9. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall you be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel, and God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give, to the, land, give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Now, if you know anything about Jacob's story, you know that he dies never receiving the land. And what does he tell his sons to do with his bones? Take me home. Take them back with you, because one day they're going to, I'm going to get in that land. He believed it. He believed it. So, land is out for you here in the time we have left. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all promised, I'm going to give you this land and your descendants as an everlasting possession. They never got it. So, either God breaks his promise, or there has to be a future fulfillment when they get the land. 
Bible actually says it is a future fulfillment. You know who said it? Jesus. Go to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. Look at verse 11. Jesus says, I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. Jesus acted like it was still future, didn't he? He said, many are going to come from the east and the west and north and the south. All these other nations are all going to come and they're going to sit at the table in the kingdom with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Folks, it's when Jesus comes back to this earth and literally sets up his kingdom on this earth when he restores all things. You say, what are you talking about? Go meet it real quickly. I'm going to give you some, some land yap. That was for you, by the way, Earl. I'm going to give you some land yap uh, that the Tuesday night group didn't get. Go to Acts chapter um, 3. In Acts chapter 3, look at verse 17. Peter is preaching. He says, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, and as did your, your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, thus he fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. You see it? He said, Jesus has gone to heaven. But if you'll repent, when he comes back, he can come for you. And when he comes back, he's going to restore everything that the prophets said long ago. By the way, if the kingdom is just us going to heaven, that's not restoring. That's something brand new. For it to be here, it's a restoring of everything that was here on the earth. Further proof, back up to Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, look at verse, verse 3. Actually, we'll start in verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, Luke says, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up. After he had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering, suffering by many proofs, appearing to them and during the 40 days and speaking to them about what? So after Jesus died on the cross, after he rose from the dead, during the 40 days that he appeared to his disciples, what was he teaching them about? The kingdom to come. Look at verse 6. After hearing Jesus teach them face to face, the resurrected Jesus about the kingdom for 40 days, look at what they say in verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? If Jesus is teaching about the kingdom, that it was not a literal kingdom, that it was not an earthly kingdom, but it was just a spiritual kingdom, they would have never asked that question. Jesus must have been teaching them that it was still going to happen. They wanted to know when. He says, not for you know the times of the dates. And you want no further proof that Jesus told them that it was a future literal kingdom on the earth? We just read it in Acts 3 when Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, under the control of the Holy Spirit, said he's going to come back and he's going to restore everything that the prophets have said. They weren't wrong in asking this question because they knew that he had said that it was going to come. Folks, there's going to be a literal time on this earth when Jesus comes back. But... I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to look at another scripture. Go with me to Amos. I know some of you probably had your quiet time in Amos this morning. 
But I want you to go back there. Uh, those of you are laughing know full well. You don't usually pick Amos for a quiet time devotional. Amos, look at chapter 9. Look at verses 11 through 15. I just, this one makes me want to shout. Your heading might say like mine does, the restoration of Israel. He's going to restore all things. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper. Did you catch that? You don't know what that means? When the plowman overtakes the reaper. In other words, there's such a huge harvest, they're already starting to plant again before they finished harvesting because there's so much to harvest. That's pretty cool. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. Do you see it? The prophets prophesied that there would be a restoring of the kingdom in Israel, in the land. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make, a gar make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their, what? Land. And they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given to them, says the Lord your God. Do you see it? Jesus taught him about the kingdom. And when he taught him about the kingdom after his resurrection, he was telling him about how he was going to restore all things. And they said, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel now? Not if you know the times and dates. God's got a plan right now that you don't understand. And the timing of it, too much for you to understand. Um, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You can be my witnesses all over the globe. Don't worry about the timing of it. But Peter, full of the Spirit, then preached and said, He has gone to heaven to the Father until He comes back and restores everything that the prophets have said. And the prophets, here's one of them. The prophets said that the restoring will be in the land of Israel. And they'll rebuild and they'll be able in those cities never to be uprooted again. So if we take the Bible to be literally true, it's kind of clear. The kingdom is still to come. Is the kingdom here? Yes, those people are right, the kingdom. But it's only evidence in the lives of those of us who know him. Hopefully, the people can see that the kingdom's here. But that's not the kingdom. The kingdom is still to come. There's still one more world ruler. There's still more one world power that's going to take control over the whole earth. He's going to have authority for three and a half years. And then Jesus is going to come back. And he's going to restore all things. But don't take my word for it. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah chapter 60, look at verse 21. Isaiah 60, verse 21. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. Now, as we close, I want to take you back to one more passage. I think only one more. But go with me to Romans chapter 11. Go to Romans chapter 11. In verses 25 through 29, Paul has already been in this previous part of the chapter asking this question, is God done with Israel? By no means. Have they been rejected forever? No. You guys have been grafted in for a time as Gentiles to make Israel jealous. 
but don't become proud thinking you're better than them. Don't think you've replaced them because if he was able to graft you in as a wild olive shoot, how much easier will it be for him when he grafts them back in who are natural? And if, your, if their rejection has been the richest for the world, how much greater will their inclusion be? And in verse 25, he says this, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. What's left of Israel at the end of the tribulation period, at the end of the time of the Gentiles, in, in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from who? Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. In other words, is he talking about the church here or Israel? Israel. Because he's already taken away our sins. We've already been given the promises made to Israel that they're going to fully get at the end of the tribulation period, the millennial kingdom, when he gives his voice their sin, puts his spirit within them, and moves them to follow his decrees. The promises that have been given to Israel have been given to us to make them jealous. We've already been had our sins taken away. He's already put his spirit within us. He's already moving us to follow his decrees. We're going to be taken away and go be rewarded, and then we'll come back with him when he comes. And that's when he restores all things in Israel. And that's when, as we've already seen, the righteous who are going to be able to live in the land. Bob, we already saw in our study last week that in Ezekiel 33, uh, chapter 20, starting in verse 33, we saw that he's going to hold a rod and Israel is going to pass under it. The righteous are going to go into the kingdom. The unrighteous won't. The Gentile nations will be gathered that live through the tribulation period and they're going to be judged according to how they treated these brothers of mine, which is Israel. And the ones that have been good for Israel are going to be allowed into the kingdom. The others are going to be cast out. But don't miss the end of this passage here. I left off verses 28 and 20, uh, verse 28. I want you to see it. As regards the gospel, the Jews are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. I'm going to ask you a simple question. Why is Israel even still here? Because God made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm going to give to you and your descendants this land. In Malachi chapter 3, God gets so exasperated with Israel. He says to them, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O Israel, are not destroyed. Folks, it's not that because Israel is, is better than the other nations. They're actually worse. Because God revealed himself to them, showed them his word, showed them his law. He said, look, I'm going to use you as a nation to judge these other wicked nations because of their idolatry and because of their, 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 their sick sin. And not only did God show that to them, they then go and copy the other nations. They knew better. And they still did what they did and even worse. And God says, the only reason you're still here, Israel, is because I've made a promise to your forefathers. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so folks, understand this. The kingdom has a lot to it, doesn't it? That's why Christians are fighting with each other over the kingdom. But they're only taking portions of the Bible's definition of the kingdom and building their doctrine around that. But when you let the whole of Scripture show you what the Bible says about the kingdom, you see that the kingdom was prophesied in the Old Testament. It was pictured in Israel, even though Israel didn't do the greatest job. It was proclaimed by John the Baptist. 
and inaugurated by Jesus when he came the first time. It's extended in the lives of believers through the church age, and it will be consummated when Jesus comes back to this earth. So when you pray, Father, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. Jesus was teaching you to pray for the kingdom to come. It's way more than just him living his life through you now. That's a part of it. But also it's saying, Lord Jesus, come back. And I can't wait for the day that we can all call him the one who was, who is and who was, and stop there. He's still the one who is to come. But one day soon, we won't have to say who is to come. Can't wait to show you a whole lot more next week, but that's enough for now. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.